If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure. Every week, twice a week, and boy do we have a cracker of a show for you tonight. Joining me this evening is writer and speaker Melinda Tankard-Reist to talk about the scourge of pornography and the negative effects it's having on teenagers and even children as well as former Federal Nationals MP George Christensen to discuss what's next on the globalist agenda to subjugate the population further in the wake of COVID-19. But first, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed the resplendent women's rights activist Catherine Deves on my second show on ADH-TV, Daisy Cousins Presents which, by the way, can be viewed on ADH at 7pm Sydney time every Wednesday. Don't miss it. While much of my wonderful interview with Catherine focused on the trans activist imposition on women's rights and women's spaces, we did touch on another subject within the realm of women's rights, pornography. Now, the opinions on the ethics of pornography are wide-ranging, from the sex-positive liberal feminists who view it as another way to empower women sexually, to radical feminists who believe pornography subordinates women by training its users, both men and women, to view women as mere sex objects over whom men should have total control. As to which view is closest to the truth, well, by the end of this editorial, it will be pretty obvious which camp I sit in and why. I first became concerned about the effects not just of pornography on young people and teenagers, but also the selfie culture of Instagram after a conversation with the daughter of a family friend back in 2015. She, who was 15 years old at the time, was lamenting the fact she knew girls her age and younger, some as young as 11, who were regularly posting sexually provocative photos of themselves in bikinis on Instagram. When I asked her why the girls were doing this, she replied, because they feel they have to. It's expected of them by the boys. She then told me that the boys, in the comments sections of these photos, would tag other random male Instagram users who had no connection to the girl in the photo, thus ensuring the image could be spread far and wide on the internet. Needless to say, this concerned and disturbed me greatly, 
And I remember thinking how modern feminists were totally neglecting 2015's teenage girls by promoting so-called sex-positive feminism. What would happen when the girls reached adulthood, I thought? More to the point, what would happen to the boys when they reached adulthood? Soon after that, I was commissioned by a former editor to write an article about a Netflix documentary called Hot Girls Wanted. Produced by popular actress and writer Rashida Jones, this documentary exposed the amateur porn industry in Miami, Florida, and the layers and layers of exploitation that faced the 18 and 19-year-old girls who, seduced by the possibility of money and fame, found themselves wrapped up in it. I only work with amateur girls brand new to the industry. Usually like 18 to 21. I call them teeny boppers. It's a trap, but the money's there in their face right now. Cash, they take it. They don't care about who you actually are. I'm trying to be famous, so gotta do what you gotta do. The shelf life of a girl? Best case scenario, a year tops. The documentary explored, among other things, the fact that many porn performers are tricked into engaging in scenes and acts they did not initially sign up for. There is no way to tell definitively whether a piece of pornographic material is consensual. Even if performers appear to be consenting, there are plenty of stories of performers being threatened with being blacklisted, being sued, being refused pay, if they didn't perform the acts required of them, no matter how brutal. And nowadays, brutal doesn't even begin to describe a lot of the material that is available, often for free, for online consumption. See, porn has evolved from the nudie mags popularized during the so-called sexual revolution of the mid 20th century to a seemingly infinite online empire that is so content saturated, the only way to get clicks is through more and more novel acts. This goes well beyond the realms of stock standard BDSM to rape, sadism, even torture, all accompanied by vile verbal degradation of the women involved by the men who are performing the scenes with them. Considering the massive brain chemical cocktail this type of material can induce in viewers, it's no wonder pornography consumption can physically change the brain. An anti-porn organization called Fight the New Drug has provided a handy resource for this kind of vital information. So we put people in the scanner and looked at their brain activity. We were interested in what effects do potentially long-term usage of, of pornographic material have on, on brain structure. So basically we found in our study that the grey matter in the reward centre is generally smaller in those people who watch more porn. What we also did is look at um, how the brain region that is smaller in structure, namely the reward region, is connected to other parts in the brain. We found that the more porn people watch, the less well the, the reward region is connected to prefrontal cortex. That their prefrontal cortex was less well able to control activity in the reward region. So the, the connection between prefrontal cortex, that is the breaking mechanism, um, onto the reward system was less strong. 
Pornography can also have dire effects on mental health, leaving consumers feeling empty, desensitized, and unable to fully connect with or love other people. Pornography right now functions as a super normal stimulus. Everything is exaggerated and as we consume those images over and over again, it can't help but influence how we see ourselves, but also how we start to see others. I reached a point where I was just done. It wasn't that I thought the actual thought, I want to die. It was that I want the pain to stop. I want the guilt to stop. I want to stop hurting people around me. It made me feel probably the worst feeling of emptiness, but you can't do anything about it. You can't, you can't even feel it, but you know it's there. You know it's the only thing there and it consumes you, but there's nothing. You just, you can't even, you're just numb to it all. It's completely flat. You're just like a robot. So where did this escalation in the depravity of pornography begin? And more to the point, how has it become so normalized in popular culture? In a 2015 interview, Rashida Jones pinpointed the women's sexual liberation movement, which was of course part of the sexual revolution, as a possible culprit. You've written about the pornification of pop culture. Can you explain that idea a little bit? I just, I had like a, a bit of like a tipping point with pop culture and I don't know if this like ages me and makes me of a different generation where I just, I saw so much imagery in one week that was just like fully inspired by porn and stripper culture and I just felt like, it just felt like something that we were forced to accept and nobody ever, we never got a chance to have a conversation about it. It wasn't like sexy, titillating, you know, suggestive. It was like, here is the bottom of my ass. Here is the closest thing you're gonna see to my vagina without getting arrested. That message, that really homogenized, myopic message that your sex is the thing that makes you valuable, that is your currency, that limits women's choices. And you think that's coming from pop culture? I do, and I think it's not like, it's nobody's fault. It's a Frankenstein of culturally what we want. It's also, to me, like, what was gonna happen, the trajectory from, you know, the women's movement and like, you know, sexual liberation movement, it was gonna happen. Like, we were gonna get to a place where anything goes. Which is, of course, the irony, isn't it? that the self-proclaimed sex-positive feminists of the mid-20th century inadvertently propped up the multi-billion dollar global porn industry, which nowadays portrays the kind of sexual misogyny and indeed sexual sociopathy that women's rights campaigners likely couldn't even imagine 50 years ago. All of this was done in their eternal quest to be quasi-men, in this case, to have sex like men and to insist female sexuality is the same as men's sexuality. News flash, it isn't. As such, it's clear that, to put it mildly, pornography creates problems for both its participants and its viewers. Now, in the case of the viewers, you might be thinking, well, who are we to judge or police what grown adults choose to do in their private time? Well, that would be a valid point if, nowadays, the vilest, most depraved pornographic videos, including child sexual exploitation material, were not so readily available to, and readily consumed by, teenagers and even children. 
According to recent e-safety research in Australia, 75% of 16 to 18 year olds had viewed online pornography and a third of those first saw it before they were 13. That's exposure to violent, degrading sexual acts before many of them have even had their first kiss. My first guest this evening is a writer and speaker, Melinda Tankard-Reist. She's a longtime campaigner for the safety of children online and the co-founder of Collective Shout, a grassroots campaign movement against the objectification of women and the sexualization of girls in the media and advertising. Through her anti-pornography work with schools and young people across the country, she has heard harrowing stories of boys, some in primary school, levelling vile, sexually charged comments not just at girls in their classes, but also at female teachers. She's also spoken to teenage girls whose boyfriends seek to enact on them the violent sexual acts they view in porn and make the girls feel like they're weird or prudish if they don't want to be choked, slapped, and all the rest. However, as Melinda says, boys are not naturally like this. This is learned behavior, and they are learning from the steady drip feed of violent pornography they are exposed to, sometimes as pre-teens, and it is ruining, perhaps forever, their perceptions of relationships, sex, and the value of women. Not to mention it's endangering women and girls, as the concept of consent is virtually non-existent in a lot of modern-day pornography. How fortunate that we have Melinda Tangard-Reist with us tonight to discuss this hugely important, concerning topic. Melinda, it is phenomenal to have you here this evening. Have you been well? I have. Thanks, Daisy. Thanks for your interest in the subject. Well, no, it's a very important subject and I'm so pleased that you're here uh, to talk to us about it. Now, Pornography is sometimes referred to or claimed to be an educational tool for teenagers, particularly in the LGBT community. However, you've spoken about how the hypersexualized imagery in it can actually prevent healthy sexual exploration. So doesn't this defeat the empowering label that's often given to the industry? Well, I agree that pornography is an education tool. In fact, it is the biggest department of education in the world. It is the primary sex educator of our young. That doesn't mean it's any good. So <laughs> it's an educational tool, all right? Uh, it is educating young people into harmful ideas about bodies, relationships, sexuality. It's deforming the developing sexual templates of our children. Our kids are being exposed to porn at the click of a button, rape porn, torture porn, sadism, incest, the most popular genres of porn are the most violent and this is having a flow-on effect that is now acknowledged by the highest violence prevention organisations in, in the country and, and globally porn is a driver of violence against women. So, yes, education uh, into the most uh, harmful ideas about uh, women and girls especially. And you do um, a lot of work with teenagers and in schools, raising awareness about exposure to pornography. How young are some of these kids experiencing it uh, and what kind of effect is it having on their behaviour? Well, the official stats around average age of first exposure is about 12, 13. However, I'm daily told 
uh, by parents of exposure, uh, six years old, seven, eight, nine, uh, even if it's not at home, on the school bus, at the school camp, in the schoolyard. Uh, boys now are airdropping porn to every child on a school bus. Boys are sharing it around uh, at school. And uh, this is having a diabolical impact on uh, relationships. It's having a diabolical impact in terms of increases in child-on-child sexual abuse at rates never before seen in Australia and globally children are acting out mimicking what they are seeing in porn. I've collated the stories of hundreds of girls around the country in every school, uh, private, public, uh, faith-based, not faith-based, rich, poor, doesn't matter. Uh, boys are uh, enacting on girls what they have learned in porn, uh, threatening them with rape if they don't send nudes, sending dick pics to underage girls, sexually groaning, grunting, moaning at girls uh, at school, uh, calling girls their dirty little sex slaves, and that was to a group of young women of colour at a school I was at in far north Queensland oh uh, recently, that was year seven, uh, girls being sexually harassed routinely, um, and girls are distressed about this uh, naturally. Uh, because boys are being socialised into a sense of entitlement to the bodies of women and girls, uh, and girls are learning that their primary value is in providing uh, sexual gratification to to men and boys. What hope is there of them forming healthy, respectful relationships? You know, millions of dollars are going into respectful relationships and consent programs. I'm not against that. But if we don't address pornography as a major contributing factor to uh, problematic sexual behaviours, then it's a waste of time Mm. and money. And money, exactly. Um, now, Melinda, what I what I like about your approach, I've I've read a number of your articles, I've watched a number of your interviews. Um, you, I think, make a point of not demonising the boys. I think there are a lot of kind of pop culture feminists out there who would just dismiss these teenage boys. Oh, there's entitled male privilege, toxic masculinity. But you've made a point of pointing out that this is not natural behaviour for boys. It's it's learned behaviour. So. Would you perhaps say, in in a way, these boys are are victims of the porn industry as well as the girls? Certainly the boys are victims. Uh, The reality is that the Australian Bureau of Statistics demonstrates that the largest cohort of sex offenders in Australia are adolescent males, 15 to 19. Most people do not know that. Mm. Those boys were not born that way. They've been taught, they've been socialised, And now we're seeing the fruit of that socialisation, that mass indoctrination of young men who are acting out the education they have learned in pornography. And the best consent program in the world cannot compete with that. You can't say in the consent classes, don't treat women like pieces of meat and then serve women up as pieces of meat in uh, pornography, which they're all being exposed to, even if they're not searching for it. So we need to help boys as well recognise that they are being fed harmful scripts, harmful toxic ideas about women uh, from porn. It will not set them up for success in life, success in relationships. Uh, So uh, a significant part of our work is helping boys see how they are being harmed as well. They're definitely not born uh, this way, but the adults have allowed them uh, to be 
socialized into these harmful uh, sexual ideas, attitudes, which lead to harmful behaviors in real life. Yeah, I mean, I find the whole thing so disturbing because I was in high school, Melinda, in the early 2000s. I went to an all-girls school, an all-girls Catholic school in Sydney. I had a lot of interaction with the local boys' schools, with school dances, uh, you know, on the bus. I used to do school musicals with them. And I'm racking my brain. I'm the same age as those girls you talked about back then. I never ever at any point in my schooling had that kind of experience with those boys. They were always just good friends mm. of mine. They were respectful. We, we weren't really interested in, in sex or, or we were, you know, putting on plays mm. together. Does that show, mm-hmm. and that's not that long ago, does that show mm. the huge influence that easy access to the internet has had on, on the porn industry and how it affects kids and teenagers? It's certainly a major driver, a major contributing uh, factor. There's no doubt about it. And uh, all of the global research now is pointing to to porn as a contributing factor, a significant driver of intimate partner, sexual harassment, of uh, violence. Uh, This is acknowledged by Our Watch, who produced a report on young people, pornography and preventing violence. It's acknowledged in our national plan to address violence against women. And it's good to see uh, that acknowledgement at long last because some of us have been saying this, you know, for a very long time. And uh, we've stated this in an open letter to the federal government signed by more than 40 uh, child protection and women's uh, safety experts, uh, high-level names in this space in Australia. Uh, The first signatory is uh, Robert Fitzgerald, uh, who led the Royal Commission into... Uh, responses to institutional child abuse. We've got Chanel Contos, uh, we've got Jess Hill, uh, Grace Tame, uh, domestic violence uh, services. Uh, There's significant Australians on that list as well, like uh, Michael Carr Gregg, teen psychologist, um, Tim Costello is there, Clive Hamilton, uh, Steve Bidolf, and other signatories who all agree that the government has failed to act to prevent the most vulnerable. The government has offloaded its ethical duties to protect the most vulnerable. It's offloaded it to citizens and it's too hard for us. It's not a fair fight. We're competing with a multi-billion dollar predatory global porn industry. The government had a chance to do something about this and the eSafety Commission recommended a pilot of an age verification. You know, there's no proof of age protections to stop children accessing porn. Uh, Nothing to show they're over 18. Why not give that a try? Other countries are doing it, but the government has rejected it. We're urging the government to rethink this. Uh, You know, the government is going to be paying so much more money in future to to treat uh, the perpetrators, to treat uh, the victims, uh, to uh, address the devastating consequences of uh, pornography in shaping our young people. Uh, The consequences are grave. We're seeing them already. Uh, What was the harm of of doing a pilot and and seeing how it would go in Australia? Because right now there's nothing to stop our children accessing rape porn, torture porn, sadism, extreme degradation and violence against women. They think this is normal. I have girls telling me in schools, boys want to choke and strangle them. Where have they learned that from? That's a genre of, of pornography. And, and just on the subject of consent, you, you've mentioned also in an interview, um, you know, there's no point having consent courses without 
combating porn, um, non-consent is a category in porn, isn't it? You know, you know, forced and non-forced. Yes. Is, is, that's correct, isn't it? Forced, absolutely. Violation, force, um, vi the violation of, of consent. There's entire genres of porn that are based on uh, domestic violence. There's something called uh, con, non-con, uh, consensual, non-consensual, uh, non-consensual porn. Again, oh. this is all education. This is mass education of of young people. A porn contributes to rape myths, the idea that no really means yes, that every woman, every girl wants to be violated. A teacher told me a chilling story last year. She overheard two 12-year-old boys talking about sex and the first boy asked the second boy, how do you know when you're having sex? And the, and, uh, the second boy replied, when she starts to cry. You oh. see, this is what they think is normal. And uh, I've interviewed uh, women who are at the coalface in domestic violence services uh, in this country, and they say they've not noted an increase in injuries in young girls. Uh, they've noticed more girls coming in uh, physically harmed, physically uh, injured, and they are attributing that to the kind of porn that uh, the boys are watching. So a uh, porn doesn't teach consent and, and never will. It, it teaches degradation, debasement, depersonalization, torture, and suffering of of women and girls and that this is somehow desirable. How, how can any government claim to care about the status of women and preventing violence against women, which is an epidemic? Mm. Uh, you know, we've had a spate of murders of women recently. You can't claim to care about that uh, and, again, allow porn to be the biggest educator of our young people. And yet so many pop culture feminists continue to insist that pornography is, is empowering and sexually liberating and, and, and all of that, and they'll also turn around and complain about domestic violence. It blows my mind. Um, now, M Melinda, I, ha I have to ask you, um, on the subject of adults and pornography, um, for men and women mm. whose concept of love and relationships has been formed through porn, what is the journey like for them to reset these views if, if the porn consumer mm -hmm. is able to break their addiction? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I wrote a book on this uh, called He Chose Porn Over Me. It's my seventh book published by Spinifex Press. He Chose Porn Over Me, Women Harmed by Men Who Use Porn, 25 personal accounts of women in relationships with habitual porn-consuming men. If these men don't get help, if they don't really want to change, uh, things do not go well for women. Uh, when I speak to young women in schools, I share some of these stories and, you know, there's a hashtag now, don't date men who use porn. And the women in my book wish they'd heard that when they were younger because uh, they couldn't change him, they couldn't make him reform. Uh, often he was uh, using porn every opportunity, uh, spending money on it, uh, using women in the sex industry, consuming porn at home, even in front of uh, the children. Uh, so unless he genuinely wants to change, uh, then it's it's a hard road for, for women. Mm. Uh, there are men who do genuinely want to change. We can work with them. Uh, we can give them uh, resources for, for how to quit, but they've got to be serious about it. You know, the small number of men that I've met who have reformed, who have changed their ways, one was on the verge of committing a crime mm. and decided he needed to do something about it and he'd been using for a long time from about 11 till 30 and was married with daughters and he, he has reformed his life. Uh, he's in the UK, he's, he's become a friend. Uh, there's a handful of other men, but they had to do things like smash their phone. 
and not go online, limit the time they were online, uh, be accountable, uh, join um, groups, get therapy, get help dealing with deeper issues uh, in their lives, recognising that they'd become a patron of a global industry which traffics women to make pornography. Mm. Uh, you know, that's the reality. Every download contributes to that global trade in the bodies of, of women and girls. And so if they fully confront that and don't make excuses for it, uh, there's a chance. But, you know, the porn industry knows it, it's winning. Mm. Uh, the porn industry deliberately drops porn into the feeds of young boys. It finds them on their gaming sites, their chat groups, anywhere they are online mm. because the porn industry needs to build the next generation of porn consumers. That's their business model. That's mm. why they don't want any regulation and that's why we're so disappointed to see the government mm. put the vested interest of the porn industry again over the well-being of young people and and the community mm. as a whole. So it's a hard road, but it is possible if the consumer is willing to get help mm. and to reform their lives. Yeah, it, it it sounds like an addiction to any any drug, whether it's alcohol or ice or pornography. It, I guess it has to be the same process, doesn't it? You have to be serious about it, and you have to take the steps to break the addiction. Melinda Tangard Reese, exactly this, right. this Melinda, this has been fantastic having you on the show. Um, all all the best in in your mission. Um, it's a, a wonderful cause that you're fighting for. So thank you for talking about it with us. Well, thanks for caring enough to, to have me on the show, Daisy. I really appreciate it. It's my, pl my pleasure. Well, in the wake of the pandemic, it's safe to say the vast majority of people are pretty sodding happy that it's over, at least in the sense of the oft-baseless COVID restrictions like lockdowns and mask mandates that ruined people's lives, businesses and mental health for the better part of three years. Sure, there are a few COVID enthusiasts out there who are still nailing their political colours to the mast by refusing to let go of mask wearing, but by and large, the general public seems to be over it. However, the quote-unquote elites of the world, while not necessarily displaying dismay that the COVID pandemic is over, do seem to be craving another one. Now, I'm sure all of you watching will have heard the conspiracy theory that COVID-19 was a deliberate plot by the mysterious powers that be who run the world behind closed doors, a plandemic, if you will. Reasons as to why the elites would do this range from subjugating a population that has grown too uppity in the last couple of decades thanks to access to the internet, to creating a global government, to achieving net zero, even to depopulation. And it's not necessarily the best idea to go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories because while some things may not be exactly what they seem, if you go too far, you might end up in a wilderness quite detached from wherever the truth is. However, as the saying goes, nowadays, the difference between a conspiracy theory and a fact is about six months. And while I've never subscribed to the theory that COVID was planned, used opportunistically by governments and bureaucrats to exert more power over the masses, yes, but not deliberately instigated, certain elites really don't help themselves in dispelling rumours that they not only planned the most recent pandemic, but are also planning another one. For example, why, in 2017, did former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr Anthony Fauci, predict 
with such certainty that the, the, that the administration at the time, which was the Trump administration, would experience a surprise outbreak. There will be a surprise outbreak. Given, as you heard from the introduction, that I have been around for a while and have had the opportunity and, and the privilege and the pleasure of serving in five administrations, um, I thought I would bring that perspective to the topic today is the issue of pandemic uh, preparedness. And if there's one message that I want to leave with you today based on my experience, and you'll see that in a moment, is that there is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak. And why, why does billionaire philanthropist and COVID vaccine enthusiast Bill Gates keep saying, nay, insisting, that there will be another pandemic possibly soon. The next pandemic. Why are you saying there's gonna be a next pandemic, Bill? Uh, why are you putting that juju on us? <laughs> Given all that we've been through, it may seem surprising that I'm optimistic that we can prevent the next pandemic. We have to make sure that we're ready uh, because there will be another pandemic. And there's so many lessons about uh, how we weren't prepared, how we should have handled things differently. Asia is a big risk and Africa is also a big risk because the boundary between humans and animals is getting uh, closer and closer. You know, if we're rational, yes. Uh, the next time we'll catch it early uh, and it won't go global like it, it did this time. Something people don't like to talk about much, which is bioterrorism, that somebody who wants to cause damage could engineer uh, a virus. As is Tedros Gebrasis, who is the Director General of the World Health Organization. COVID-19 will not be the last pandemic. As is US President Joe Biden. If we need more money to plan for the second pandemic, there's going to be another pandemic. We have to think ahead. In the case of Bill Gates, he's also written a whole book about it called How to Prevent the Next Pandemic, and his YouTube channel is full of videos outlining his grand plan to combat this next pandemic, likening it to fighting fires. A pandemic is like a fire that starts in one building, and within weeks, it's not only burning in an entire city, it's burning in every country of the world. So to prevent pandemics, we need the equivalent of a global fire department. Just as we need smoke detectors, we need health workers around the world on the lookout for disease outbreaks. And just like we have firefighters, we need a team whose full-time job is to prevent pandemics, raising the alarm when outbreaks emerge, helping contain them, and working on new tools, diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. Creating this organization will not be easy, but I'm convinced it will make the world a lot safer. 
I ask you, is that really the type of world you'd want to live in? Where every country is subject to an international, unelected global body, likely run by the World Health Organization, which is another international, unelected global body, by the way, that supposedly identifies outbreaks as they occur all over the world? Governments would be throwing their populations into lockdown every time someone in Africa got the sniffles. No offense, Africa, but you have had a hard time with illness. Of course, that's the idea, though. Have the power to reduce people's movement and therefore, dare I say it, their carbon emissions in terms of car and aeroplane usage, thus benefiting the renewable energy industrial complex, which, of course, Bill Gates invests heavily in, both with his personal wealth and via various companies. And, fun fact, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is also the second largest contributor to the World Health Organization's funding after the entire nation of the United States of America. Are you starting to see how this works? Bill Gates even has a name for this international pandemic task force. He calls it GERM. Amazingly, today, we do not have a large global organization dedicated to preventing pandemics. There are some part-time efforts. The WHO helps the world with lots of health issues, but it hasn't been given the resources to have this dedicated team. We need to create this group with full-time paid experts who are constantly tracking disease outbreaks. I call this the Global Epidemic <coughs> Response and Mobilization Team. And so the acronym is GERM. Now, all of this could possibly be dismissed as a billionaire simply doing what billionaires do, making money and donating it to trendy causes. Hell, maybe Bill Gates is simply trying to sell his new book. However, we can't forget a little gathering called Event 201, which occurred in late 2019. This was quite literally a war game in pandemic preparedness, a fictional scenario in which great minds got together to brainstorm solutions for a hypothetical health crisis. They even put together a fake news report just to make it seem more real. It began in healthy-looking pigs months, perhaps years ago. A new coronavirus spread silently within herds. Gradually, farmers started getting sick. Infected people got a respiratory illness with symptoms ranging from mild flu-like signs to severe pneumonia. The sickest required intensive care. Many died. Experts agree unless it is quickly controlled, it could lead to a severe pandemic, an outbreak that circles the globe and affects people everywhere. A new coronavirus spread through animals that could lead to a worldwide pandemic. Just months before people infected with COVID-19, also obviously a coronavirus, started emerging. Coincidence? Or something more sinister? What I do know is that the same organization did the same thing, another pandemic war game, as recently as late 2022. Same format, same purpose, even basically the same fake news report. A 
Officials in two Latin American countries alerted the WHO of several outbreaks of a new infectious disease that's mysteriously appearing across the region, Severe Epidemic Enterovirus Respiratory Syndrome 2025. Over the past six weeks alone, there have been 500 confirmed or suspected cases reported. The virus could cause a severe pandemic if early containment and mitigation efforts are not successful. And just which organization organized both the 2019 and 2022 pandemic war games? The John Hopkins Center for Health Security in partnership with, of course, the World Economic Forum and, you guessed it, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Add to all of this the fact that the World Health Organization is already warning the world about something called Disease X, which is the name for a hypothetical disease that could supposedly emerge at any moment and become an even worse pandemic than COVID. And you can understand why, maybe, at least a few people out there are scratching their heads. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily buy into the plandemic theory, but at the very least, it's food for thought, right? Joining me to help demystify all of this is former Federal Nationals MP, George Christensen. George Christensen, it is so fantastic to have you here this evening. How are you? I'm very good, Daisy, and yourself? I am not too bad, and I'm very, very keen to get your to get your eminent take on this topic this evening. Now, George, tell me, what is the point of this emergency pre-planning to defend ourselves against so-called disease X if we don't know what it looks like or when or even if it will emerge? Or is this just a scare campaign to make sure populations never quite get comfortable with their freedoms? Well, I think it's what you've just said. It's also prepping us for the inevitable, which is pandemic 2.0, or should I say pandemic 2.0. <laughs> I mean, the reality is we had Bill Gates uh, earlier this year talking at Germany's uh, Munich Security Conference, and he actually said um, that, uh, you know, there is going to be uh, a new pandemic. We're going to have to go through it all again. Uh, the World Health Organization right now, they're raising these concerns about disease X, uh, the so-called experts all around the world from the medical establishment, the health bureaucracy are talking about it. Uh, uh, and, and not just talking about it, I mean, this is a hypothetical disease that they are talking about. And yet the, you've, you've got outfits like uh, uh, the CEPI, which is the... Uh, Centre for, uh, if I can get the acronym right here, Daisy, the Centre for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations in Oxford University. They've already committed $80 million to develop a vaccine for a hypothetical disease. <laughs> How does this all work? Uh, I don't understand it. I don't think uh, you or any of your listeners understand it. I don't think anyone with common sense understands it, apart from... Uh, as you say, quite rightly, it's about keeping the fear of viruses going, keeping this in the back of our collective memories so that the next time that governments want to roll out mask mandates, jab mandates, lockdowns, curfews, that we're all ready to go for it. We're all in that state of 
fear and panic. And no doubt that is going to come. Uh, I, I am, I am well and truly, uh, uh, I well and truly believe, Daisy, that uh, you know the globalist forces such as uh, uh, the World Health Organization, United Nations, they are truly planning us for uh, another worldwide pandemic like we saw last time. So my big question then, George, is why? Like, why do do we see this this power grab from the elites? What's their game? Well, let me let me uh, segue, and it's not much of a segue across to the so-called pandemic treaty, mm. uh, which you know the United Nations just discussed very recently, only a few weeks ago. Uh, we had uh, unfortunately our representatives there, Australia's representatives at the UN, uh, all for it. Uh, along with the US. Um, thankfully, uh, the summit that they had on this uh, so-called pandemic treaty uh, actually come up with weasel words as the United Nations is wont to do, uh, and it meant absolutely nothing. But the people who are behind this uh, pandemic treaty, they want uh, the World Health Organization to have overarching powers that would affect nations like Australia. Uh, they want the, the ability to actually uh, have directors of the World Health Organization be able to be the ones that blow the whistle when pandemic measures come into effect. They want every country across the world, including Australia, to actually have legislation on the books that triggers certain things when the World Health Organization uh, calls a pandemic. And, and those things could include, as I just said before, curfews lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Uh, all of this is just simply a repeat, but they're going to do it in a centralised fashion. So you ask the question, to what end would they do it? It's a power grab. This is about global governance. It's actually not so much about pandemic preparedness as it is about centralising power internationally. And that's what these people have wanted all along. You know, they've tried it on with climate change for umpteen years now and they've failed because largely there's a, a, a segment of the population that I think is growing that just rejects the idea that at all costs we've got to do something about the climate even though apparently if you talk to the experts whatever we do is not going to fix anything <laughs> uh, so the public have rejected that but they found they found their their little groove now because uh, unfortunately there's a lot of uh, a so-called conspiracy theorist said during the pandemic, this was a test and we failed it because, you know, populations across the world completely acquiesced to the most draconian of orders that governments imposed. I mean, particularly in Victoria where oh, they had yes. the, uh, the world's longest lockdowns ever. I mean, but even in Sydney mm. under a, 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 a liberal national government, they had curfews mm. on grown adults in certain suburbs. I mean, bizarre stuff. It is bizarre stuff. And I, I know it It shocked me uh, that our fellow Australians were like this. I, I'm sure it shocked you um, that people just acquiesced mm. to it. And it certainly shocked a lot of people in the international community that Australians would just go along with it because they had this, you know, view of Australians as the larrikin, the rebel. I mean, well, it turns That's out right. Australians are actually quite timid. But that's what 
what concerns me, George, I mean, we all know the saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. But have people yeah. learnt their lesson from COVID-19 or will everyone fall back into line if all these mandates come knocking on our doors again? Well, look, I've got a little bit of hope that actually we might have learnt our lesson here. More and more people, as news unfolds, and it is unfolding, it's more than just, uh, you know, fringe reporting now. It is now seeping into the mainstream that, uh, you know, these vaccines never stop transmission. So, therefore, what was the point of these no-job, no-jab mandates? Uh, people will remember that. And so the next time round that they try and bung this on, I think there's going to be a degree of very, very healthy scepticism in the community about it. Uh, now, look, uh, unfortunately, you're right. I mean, a lot of Americans were looking on in shock, thinking, what happened to Crocodile Dundee? You know, <laughs> uh, we thought the Aussies were uh, different to this, but um, we weren't. Now, I don't want to go and blame anyone because we had the pants scared off us about a virus that, uh, quite frankly, you had a greater than 99.72% a chance of surviving. Mm. So uh, we had the absolute pants frightened of us in, a, in, in what seemed to be and, and, and pretty much what was a coordinated effort between the mainstream media and big government. Um, so so you, can, you can understand when every single news outlet uh, is blaring at you that you, uh, you must mask up, uh, you must stay at home, uh, you must lock down, you must uh, obey these curfews that you're just going to do what you're told. Um, uh, but now that it's turned out that a lot of these measures really didn't matter at all, uh, you know, we still saw inevitably what was going to happen with the virus. Mm. The virus is going to virus. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter about curfews. It didn't matter about lockdowns. It didn't matter about masks. Uh, it all just played out how it was going to play out with the virus. And I remember saying this when Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland was shutting down our borders and talking about uh, how she was keeping us safe from a virus that was <laughs> otherwise going to hunt you down, Daisy. It was going to hunt you down, this virus. Yeah. And I said to someone, uh, do you buy this? And they said, oh, yeah, it's very serious. I said, well, let's just take away COVID-19. Can you imagine if the Premier got up one morning and declared to Queensland that she was going to keep us safe from influenza? Do you mm. think that really the public would buy that? And he said, no, we wouldn't. I said, well, why do you buy it with COVID-19? So, so, you know, uh, there was a measure of just non-common sense, a measure, measure of illogicality about all of this. And uh, I think that as news has emerged about the failings of what went on with the pandemic, what governments did with the pandemic, mm. uh, what Big Pharma did with the pandemic, uh, I think there's going to be a degree of healthy scepticism. Well, I, I certainly hope you're... Right, George, because, you know, we all know what we, we all went through back then and I would really hate to see Australians fall into that same trap. But I, I think certainly with the kind of leaky nature of the vaccines and also mm -hmm. it was very funny, I remember the clip of Daniel Andrews saying, you'll only ever need two shots, two shots is all you'll ever need. And then like two months later it was like, well, you need booster number yeah. one and booster number two yeah, and booster yeah. number... And oh, actually it doesn't stop you getting the... Right. Yes. So I, th I think hopefully you're right. Now, George, stepping sideways uh, for a second to the Albanese government's misinformation and disinformation bill, which I'm sure they will 
if it, you know, if it passes, used to, uh, with, with great aplomb in the case of another pandemic. So the Albanese government has assured us yes. its combating misinformation and disinformation bill won't inhibit freedom of speech and political expression. But will that be Nonsense. possible given the nature of the proposed law for the two to coexist? Well, no, it won't. And I mean, you just got to simply go to the bill and look at the measures or look at the areas that they're covering. They actually tell you what they're going to be focusing on. Uh, the bill uh, just targets a number of different areas where they say uh, this could cause the potential for harm. So they're talking about commentary that, uh, for instance, affects the health of Australians. So you've nailed it. Uh, if there's another pandemic and we, Daisy, have this discussion, uh, it could essentially be censored off the internet uh, by this law. Uh, so, so that's number one. Uh, they talk about harm to the environment. Now, I don't know that any conversation has actually ever harmed the environment. You know, <laughs> we didn't just start talking about climate change and a bunch of koalas died, Daisy. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so what are they talking about? They're talking about censoring discussion around climate change. Mm. So, so that's another area that they're going to target. Uh, you know, th then there's uh, uh, whole catch-alls like, you know, if you uh, uh, could potentially say something that harms the integrity of a Commonwealth state or local government. Well, I think that they harm themselves with that. Um, we don't have to do anything to contribute to it. But but yet that's this catch-all that's like, well, what is harming the integrity of a government? Mm. I mean, is speaking against the government harming the integrity of it? I mean, it's dangerous, dangerous stuff. They even talk about harming the economy, harm to society. Uh, and, of course, there's harm to minority groups, including, uh, you know, the LGBTIQ alphabet soup. Now, uh, I've got nothing against uh, that that particular community. Uh, live and let live is my motto. Mm, but, exactly. I mean, if you start saying stuff like, you know, we shouldn't have schools teaching uh, that Johnny can be Jane and Jane can be Johnny, is that going to fall afoul of the misinformation and disinformation laws? I don't know because they've given no clear example or no clear definition of what is misinformation and misinformation. And more to the point, uh, what is false and what is true? Who is going to be the arbiter of that? Really, that's dangerous stuff. We're entering... Um, 1984's, uh, uh, you know, Ministry of Truth set up here where we're going to have some government department, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, or maybe it might be a special council that's set up that uh, determines whether something is true and something is not. Hmm. It's yes. dangerous. And I don't know how any of this can lead to, uh, to not lead to an infringement of our constitutionally implied right to political communication. Mm. That's our constitution that yes. enables us to have free speech and discussions like this. Uh, but the Albanese government's uh, dangerously walking towards undermining that. They, I think they really are. And, and as, as you'd mentioned, um, there's no information on what specifically misinformation and disinformation examples could be, which seems to be the Albanese way. Oh, if I just don't tell people the details and they it's won't the find voice. reasons. the voice, exactly. They won't find reasons to it's dislike it. It's the vibe. Oh, it's the vibe. Yes, exactly. Now, look, 
George, one of the elements of this proposed bill is the excluded content clause, which identifies certain types of information that will be outside the scope of, of, of regulatory powers, including the Australian government, but not the opposition mm. or any other minor party. Isn't it so <laughs> dangerous to have a government that will technically be above criticism and reproach? It is, it is, and it speaks volumes. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, uh, not just the government, but the mainstream media as well is going to be excluded uh, from this bill. And that tells you everything. I mean, it, it almost is an admission that from time to time, the government and the mainstream media engage in misinformation or disinformation. Otherwise, why would you need to take them out of the coverage of this bill? Mm. If the government never engages and the media never engages in misinformation or disinformation, why aren't they subject to the bill? Um, you know, so it, it gives the game away. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it is extremely dangerous where you're going to have one side that is going to have to be beholden to these set of rules, these set of very, very subjective rules around what is false and what is true and another side of the political arm that is just going to be able to get away with whatever they want to say, mm. scot-free. Um, you know, look, uh, uh, but, but that's not an argument to have the government in this legislation. The argument really that I want to put forward is the legislation, they need to hold it up Put a, put a lighter underneath it and burn it. <laughs> Torch so it. So it never, ever is seen again. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with you. It is it is completely egregious and it's great to... Ch it's important we keep talking about it. Now, George, just quickly before we go, I have to get your take on this. Uh, Nation First recently published an article highlighting an American study which suggested a correlation between leftist ideologies and mental disabilities. Does this mean biology might actually be able to blame for the rabid wokeness infecting our lives? Well, I don't think we can blame everything on that, but it is interesting nonetheless. Uh, the University of York and the ULCA actually discovered this correlation between leftist stances like cancel culture and open borders and a whole heap of other the woke uh, shibblers uh, and certain mental disabilities. They used a transcranial magnetic stimulation system to actually observe that connection. Mm. They got two politically moderate subjects split into two groups uh, one group received a low dose of magnetism. The second group underwent strong direct pulses that temporarily disabled specific parts of the brain. And from there, they actually started to get views. And the more disabled those parts of the brain got, the more leftist and pro-Biden uh, <laughs> the actual sentiments came out. So uh, I think that that is absolutely hilarious. Oh, that's uh, hysterical. And, and to me... You know, what can you extrapolate from it? I'm not saying that every person with left-wing views has um, a mental disability. No. But <laughs> the actual part of the brain they shut down is the part of the brain that actually is to do with reason, logic. And so emotion completely took over. Oh, that's And so this tells you something very strongly. There is a disconnection between what is actually going on in the world the logical sort of uh, uh, taking in of that information and then the logical understanding of what has to be done to fix the problem before you. Yes. And I, I think that that is what we, what we see so often with the leftists say, very, very good on emotion. 
Mm. Look at The Voice, for instance. It's all about the vibe. Just go and do it. Make these people feel better. It's the uh, right forget about thing the consequences. to do. It's decent. It, it, it's polite. Um, all of that, yes. Um, and you boil every leftist argument down on any issue and you'll probably come up with that same answer. Yes, it's just the right thing to do. It's decent and it'll make people feel better. Uh, George Christensen, that, that is an hilarious study. Thank you so much for bringing it to the floor and nation first. It's been wonderful to have you tonight and I do hope we see you again soon. Thanks very much, Daisy. Good to be with you. Well, that's all we've got time for tonight on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Thank you to my guests and to everyone who made the show possible. And make sure you tune in next week and every week I'll be right here. Up next is The Other Side with Damien Khoury. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.